Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. How should educators talk about race in the classroom, given the recent social justice movement in our country? What American history should students learn about? These questions have fueled debates in school districts nationwide and locally. Look no further than Guilford, Connecticut, where a slate of Republican candidates are running for school board. They lay out their platform under a list of five reasons why. Number one on their list, quote, stop indoctrination of critical race theory. What does that have to do with public schools? Today, where we live, we hear from educators and students. And later, we demystify critical race theory, a legal framework that has been misconstrued to describe recent conversations about race and racism. Now, let's start with Guilford. I recently spoke with George Cooksey. He's the English chair at Guilford High School. I asked him about the lessons he teaches students in the wake of national conversations about race and racism. Here's an excerpt. We really do want to prepare kids to play a real part in the world that we live in now and the world that they will live in in the future. So we do have uh, lots of debates on current issues, and this is a this is a debate that's very close to us. Um, I will say that as you know, when I look at this debate in the context of what's gone on really over the last 10 years, um, you know, a few years ago, we had a push for more cultural responsiveness and diversity in the curriculum. Um, people were really challenging us to add dimension to our curriculum, which we have been doing. You know, a, a lot of that came from students that graduated you know, in 2005 and the curriculum had already changed since then. We've added uh, a number of titles that added uh, voices from different cultures and authors from different um, ways of life uh, into the curriculum and we continue to do that. So that push happened you know, a few years ago and that really challenged us. And we've had lots and lots of meetings and an equity audit to look at um, what voices are being heard what kind of representation do we have in the curriculum? Um, how can every student feel like they're part of this, that they can connect with these characters, with these writers, with these issues? So we've been working on that. And now I think just by the laws of physics, you have a push from the other side, right? So, you know, this idea of um, that we don't want to make anyone feel bad or guilty about their role, um, you know, as primarily the dominant culture, the dominant white culture. So um, that push has been happening from, the, from that perspective. And we're looking at that, right? So I think my perspective is, this is a good thing that we have these pushes. It's really challenging us to look at what we're teaching, like with the content, what materials are we bringing into the classroom? And I'm not just talking about the big text that we read. But what are we bringing in from current things, like what articles from newspapers, magazines, podcasts from NPR, for example, 
um, or you know any number of podcasts that, that we bring into the classroom, um, TED Talks. So we're always bringing in a variety of sources that um, we hope will promote different sides of, sides of any debate that we have. And we try to be inclusive in that so that every student, no matter where they stand, will feel like, okay, that voice has been heard. I, I can feel safer to, um, to say my point and, and to argue what I believe is, is true here. So um, I think in some ways, I don't know, I, this quote from Emerson really struck me um, when he was living in a divisive time. He said, this time, like all times, is a good one if we but know what to do with it. And I think in this case, we're being pushed to look at things and to really think about what we're doing, how we're doing it, what we're including, who we're including, and what we're excluding and what we might need to bring in. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a chance for us to grow. It's ironic when you think about the conversations that you're having in class with students, uh, model the conversations maybe that adults in the community should be having. <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great point, Lucy. Um, so I actually teach AP language and composition, and in that class, we really talk about argumentation and how how do you have a, a good argument with people um, that's respectful, um, that that you can actually listen to each other and do that. So. Uh, I'm hoping that as we go through this process with the students, that they're learning how to have these debates in a way that's productive, that it's life-giving, that um, that they can feel good about when they're when they're in class, and then when they leave this class and get out into the world, because this is you know they're gonna they're gonna go out there and they're gonna have a part to play. That was George Cooksey, the English chair at Guilford High School here on Where We Live. I wanted to bring into the conversation on Zoom now Dr. Paul Freeman, who's superintendent of Guilford Public Schools. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about the conversations that your school community have had starting all the way in 2019, long before the murder of George Floyd, when this national conversation on on race and racism really uh, became heightened. Uh, I heard George say that we've been pushed uh, to look at the curricula, and I understand that's from current students and also alumni. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, we've been trying to talk about topics of... um, of equity and representation, and then about about um, race and racism in our schools and in our classrooms, for a long time now. Um, the um, members of the leadership team in the community in Guilford um, worked years ago uh, in a multi-district. Um, uh, activity that was structured by the Connecticut Center for School Change. We worked with other districts around the state talking about how do we ensure that our schools and our systems and then our classrooms, most importantly, uh, are safe and equitable and culturally responsive responsive spaces. Um, we've worked in the schools um, for a long time with those conversations. We had students a couple of years ago who studied their reading diet in the English department and created a presentation and brought it forward to George and his colleagues at the high school and the Board of Education, asking us to diversify the texts that that we were reading in the classroom. Um, more diverse authors as well as more diverse um, protagonists, whether those be fictional or, or historical. That's been an important conversation. We've been working on that for a long, long time um, with community support. If, in fact, if anything, with 
with some impatience from the community for the pace at which we were pursuing that work. Uh, we thought we were doing this work slowly and thoughtfully and intentionally. And in the last few years, particularly with the murder of George Floyd, um, that pace has picked up and we've clearly started doing the work more quickly. We're talking about it more overtly. We're being more intentional about it, but it's not new. None of this conversation is new in Guilford or new in our classrooms. When people hear the term systemic racism, when we think about the lessons that students are learning in school, you know, why is it important to acknowledge this in Guilford schools? And can you give examples of how this is talked about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, we think it's important to talk both about historical and um, current and systemic racism. Um, and the fact is, if you don't acknowledge a thing, then you can't talk about it honestly and you can't do anything to make it better. I mean, obviously our country has roots in, in a racist system. We can't deny that. You can't pretend that that didn't happen. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't also be proud of our history, but we have to help our students to learn how to hold this cognitive of dissonance. We have made progress. We have done great work in, in moving away from legal, legalized, formal forms of racism. Um, but if we stop there, right, if we pretend that racism was solved when, when Martin Luther King Jr. Um, said, I have a dream, or if we pretend that racism ended the day that Barack Obama was elected president, then we're also not being honest. We need to allow the students to recognize that there are, um, you know, those, those deep roots continue to flower today. And if we don't talk about that, if we don't address the reality of, of systemic racism, um, then we're doing our students a disservice. And as George said, we're not preparing them um, to go out into the world outside of Guilford and to engage in conversation and work moving forward. Um, you know, in Guilford, we engage in an activity. Um, it's at the eighth grade level. It's, it's the Witness Stones Project. When students are studying um, slavery, they don't just study it um, historically and at a distance. We look at, at real enslaved people who lived their lives here locally in Guilford. We create a really hyper-local focus, and the students um, become historians. They, they actually study those real individuals who lived their lives here in the same town that they're growing up in, walked the same streets that they walked. And then we install a witness stone at a location where that individual spent a significant part of their lives. Um, oftentimes we have family members who are part of that activity. And we've had family members, both of the enslaved individuals themselves who are learning about their, um, their ancestors. We've also had people who have participated whose family members were the, the slave holders, were the people who actually held those people in slavery. And it becomes this really important and rich conversation that then has to be connected today. You cannot then make the connections to what's happening in, in society today. And again, the murder of George Floyd brought that home in a real way for our students and graduates. They wanted to talk about that. They wanted to talk about discrepancies um, that you find in healthcare, that you find in the, the prison system, that you find in, in police violence. And how do we have those conversations 
in ways that are healthy. We don't blame students for the history, but if we don't ask them to engage with current racism, then again, we're doing them a disservice. We're not preparing them to go out into a world. You're hearing Dr. Paul Freeman here on Where We Live, Superintendent of Guilford Public Schools. As we talk about the ways educators are thinking about race and racism and bringing uh, these topics that can be uncomfortable into the classroom, there's definitely backlash in communities. Uh, Guilford uh, sees that as well. Uh, some say this is identity politics, uh, Paul. And so how do you respond to that backlash? Yeah. Acknowledging someone's identity is not identity politics. Pretending not to acknowledge their identity, in fact, is harmful. Um, again, right, turning a blind eye to historic racism um, would leave us all ignorant. If we didn't acknowledge the realities of the past, everybody knows the cliche, then we're doomed to repeat the errors of the past. If you, if you walk into a classroom or a school or a conversation and pretend to be colorblind, um, then we're ignoring a part of our students' identity. We don't ignore who they are. We don't ignore the experiences that are important to them. We honor and value them. We don't use those identities um, to separate people, to blame people, to shame people. Um, but identities are important, and we all deserve um, to be proud of our identities and to know that those identities are valued by recognizing um, that African Americans have been treated unfairly, have been um, have um, have continued to experience the effects of racism even after it 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 stopped being legal to do so. That's not identity politics. That's honesty, right? And 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 you and George both mentioned we know these conversations are uncomfortable, but if we don't recognize uncomfortable truths, then we're choosing ignorance. And and we're educators. We're a system that educates. We cannot choose ignorance. That's simply not the way uh, to teach our children. You mentioned this work has been going on for several years now in Guilford, and you know, I listened to a talk that you gave uh, to a community group uh, earlier this year, and when we think about the work being done in Guilford, that you said it really started in 2019 when you surveyed uh, student experiences at Guilford Public Schools, uh, the idea that um, you know you have 1% uh, of, of high school students identify as black, 6% Latinx, 7% Asian, and you wanna mm -hmm. make sure that their voices are heard. But there was also something that happened in 2019 that you were very candid about um, that brought news headlines to your town is when a student showed up at, a, I believe, a football game in blackface. And then certainly that did not represent the entire Guilford community. But you you were very candid in saying that some of the reaction that you heard from the school community, parents and students, can you share what they what they told you that surprised you, that, that gave you pause that this is something that we need to not put behind us, but work towards better understanding. Yeah, you know, I'm happy to. That was not a proud moment for us, but that became an important moment for us. Um, you know, we're talking about an action that one student chose to engage in. It certainly didn't, um, it, it didn't speak to most of the students that I know here in Guilford. But the response to that behavior was that that I 
had both students and adults approach me and say it was just meant to be funny or it was not actually blackface, it was just black makeup, or actually say to me, why is blackface offensive? And, and that did give us pause. And, and two things came out of that. One, um, you know, a really respected social studies teacher, a, a social studies teacher who, who worked a career in Guilford and, and really cared about history and about his students, said to me after the event occurred, you know, I've never overtly talked about blackface in my classroom. Um, it, we assume that people will know what things may be offensive. We assume that people know the histories that can make behaviors offensive. But if we don't make space to talk about them um, in the classroom and at the community level, again, we're choosing ignorance. And so, um, you know, we said really candidly that um, this behavior doesn't speak to all of the students in Guilford or all of or most or, or but if even one student didn't understand that it was wrong and if people on the heels of it tried to minimize it or didn't understand why it was wrong well then it told us again that we might be doing the right work but we're not doing it intentionally enough. We're not doing it loudly enough. Um, and so we, we immediately said, we need to, in every classroom, talk overtly in, about why blackface is wrong, but we need to look at our systems and begin to think, how have we not done that sooner? How, how have we not addressed that in a way that is honest and respectful um, and teaches our students how to, to think about everybody's identity, everybody as an individual, and how to be respectful of those. That conversation bled into a mascot change for us. Um, we were for years discussing a Native American mascot that we still held on to at our high school. And a lot of people in the community said that that was done to be an honorific. We were trying to honor the native and indigenous peoples who were here before us. Well, those people have been asking us for a long time not to do that. They don't view it as an honor. So who are we as a system to insist that we're going to recognize you in a way that you choose not to be recognized? So we had to say it was important to recognize that our intention is less important than the impact of our actions. And we have to first be honest enough to acknowledge the impact of our actions and then find ways to make those actions better, more positive, more anti-racist rather than unintentionally and thoughtlessly racist. Um, and now even that term anti-racist is a charged term. Um, mm -hmm. There are people in the community in Guilford who will be upset that I chose to use that phrase today. But but in that story, it's the right phrase. How, in, in both of those cases, we needed to find ways to be actively better neighbors and friends and teachers to our students rather than saying we're going to keep doing something we've done for 70 years and if people are offended by it we don't mean for it to be offensive so so they should be okay um right and i think that's the way that our, 
one individual student who made a really poor decision was thinking. But when you think about the mascot, that's the way a whole community had been proceeding. And we needed to think about how to be better friends and teachers and a, and a better, more positive community. And Paul, fast forward to the work that you and the current school board have done uh, supporting uh, efforts to change curriculum moving forward. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, you know, we're conducting a curricular self-audit. We're looking at the texts and materials that we use to ensure that they they come from a diverse palette of authors and that they represent a diverse palette of, of protagonists, again, historical and fictional. Um, we are we're looking at ways to diversify our teacher workforce um you know the best way to have these conversations and the best way to recognize you know people's um diverse experiences and backgrounds is to to have some people on our teaching staff that students you know it's important for students not just to see themselves in in the books they read but in the teachers and leaders that they work with that's a challenge across connecticut but we're trying to make real overt efforts to do that um, we're working with our instructional coaches to help classroom teachers facilitate the kinds of conversations that George is talking about. We know they're uncomfortable. Uh, we can see in the conversation in the community how uncomfortable they make people. And so therefore, teachers need to be really thoughtful and skillful in how they facilitate those conversations to make sure every voice is heard and to make sure it's safe um, to ask even uncomfortable questions like, why is blackface wrong? Like students need to be safe to ask that question so that we can then respond and, and, and thoughtfully and, and, and kindly and respectfully lead them through that work. So again, it's not new work in Guilford, but, but we're being louder and more intentional and more overt about it. And that has, that's raised the level of discomfort around the conversation. George Cooksey uh, told me that um, he feels like he and his colleagues have the freedom to expand the curriculum in this way and that his fear uh, moving forward be, would be if there was a situation where people are banning books or documents or talking about certain issues in the classroom. Do you have any concerns about that freedom moving forward? Absolutely. So the curricula in Guilford are written uh, intentionally in a way that a towards teachers wide professional and academic latitude. Um, and that's not by mistake, that's a design feature. We know that our teachers um, are skilled, uh, are professional, and they know their students best. George mentioned that you know, material selections have to include current news articles and, and podcasts and editorials. Um, and so teachers need the ability to make those decisions in real time and say, yes, we're reading this historical text. And you know what? Something happened in the news just last week that really connects to that. So teachers are encouraged to supplement the, the formal materials um, with, with other materials that they find and that they bring into the classroom. I am concerned that, that this national conversation that's happening will have a chilling effect and that teachers will be will be intimidated out of making those really good instructional decisions and that they will end up playing it safe and not bringing in um, really provocative pieces. And again, we're educators. We should be encouraging our students to think. We should be stretching them. Uh, learning only happens with a little bit of discomfort. We talk about um, you know, whether you're learning math or, or, or 
phonics, you need to bring students out of their comfort zone to the edge of discomfort because that's where the learning occurs. The same can be applied to social learning, to social studies, to history, to literature. Um, if you're not wrestling with a text, then that text isn't really challenging you. And I am afraid that teachers are going to experience a chilling effect and that they will be afraid um, to do this work for fear of being accused of indoctrinating or bringing in something that's politically incorrect. And therefore, uh, we're not going to ban books. We're an educational institution. We're not going to say you can't read these authors or you can't read these texts. Um, that's not how we learn. That was Dr. Paul Freeman, superintendent of Guilford Public Schools here on Where We Live. We thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Lucy. Coming up, what kinds of conversations about American history and race are happening where you live or in your school district? After the break, we're going to talk more about uh, a mandate in Connecticut uh, where an elective must be offered by high schools looking at black and Latino studies. You can join us as well on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up later, more about critical race theory. We'll hear about the implications when this is misconstrued in the debate over how to talk about race and racism in schools. Now, earlier we heard Guilford Superintendent Dr. Paul Freeman talk about why curricula at his school must adapt and change. In Connecticut, there's a state mandate for high schools to start offering an elective course next fall that focuses on Black and Latino studies. It's a first in the nation requirement. Joining us now is a teacher and a student from Windsor High School. Uh, Windsor, this teacher has been piloting the Black and Latino Studies course there. Daisha Brabham joins us, a social studies teacher at Windsor on Zoom. Daisha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Shaquilla Campbell's also with you. She's a senior at Windsor High and, and a student in your class. Shaquilla, thanks for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Daisha, I'm going to start with you. So, I mentioned that this is a mandate, uh, but you're actually teaching this a year early. How's that been going at, at Windsor? I think so far it's it, it's been really exciting. It's been exciting to see students engage in kind of um, these higher order questions and really being responsive in the moment um, to their questions. So I think it's been going really well. I'm really excited to be teaching it. 
So this is a vast subject matter. So how do you break it down? Um, so um, how the course has been um, written or how the curriculum has been written so far is that it really divides and kind of separates um, African-American history as well as um, Latinx history in the later course. Um, but basically, you kind of go um, section by section in the curriculum and kind of address um, different questions and different moments in African-American and Latinx history, while also kind of engaging students in broader questions about race and identity and how that fits into the historical context. Shaquilla, what, what made you sign up for this class? Um, I feel like what really drove me to sign up for the class, I feel like, was I feel like I didn't know enough. Like, I felt like at this point, like, as a senior, I felt like what I knew about my history and like Latino history wasn't enough, I feel like. And I felt like I had the space in my schedule and I had the opportunity to take this class. So it would be almost like ignorant or choosing to not know if I didn't take the class. I just felt kind of like a responsibility to take the class. I had the space and I felt like I didn't know enough. And so there's a class specifically geared to this information that I didn't know. So I chose to take it. So contrast that. You're a senior, so uh, that must be an exciting time for you, right, Shaquilla? But when you think back to your social studies or history classes that you've taken in the past, you know, how would you describe, um, you know, this this course? Have there been moments where you've been, you felt freer to talk about things, but at the same time also uncomfortable? Um, I feel like definitely uncomfortable. I feel like in other history classes that I've taken in my years, they've been more like, it's been very repetitive. It kind of seems like they're trying to like check off the same box. Like normally around that, like February Black History Month, you hear like the same lessons about the same like four or five people, like go over slavery, go over civil rights movement, and then that's it. And then back to the regular lesson that doesn't really include people like me it just it just seemed very repetitive like there was nothing different it normally just felt rushed and like they're trying to check off the box and we're just continuously telling me things I already knew about the same few people Mm. Daisha how do you respond to what Shaquilla shared I like how she described that like the the feeling of before having just to check off the box uh, learning particular historic moments but not really thinking about the context of how it relates today Yeah, and I think that that's a really important piece of this is that we're not only asking students to really engage in historical moments, but also how does that provide them the space to reflect on now and how they connect to history in itself. Um, So, you know, being able to talk about enslavement, but not, but also being able to talk about the legacies of enslavement and how that applies to people in the Caribbean um, versus the United States. Um, being able to discuss um, reconstruction and look at how those different ideologies can kind of be seen reflected today. So I think what's really interesting about this course, and and I think why courses such as this are so important, is that we're really asking students to really dive deeper into the content, and we're asking them to do more um, and really adding more to the story, which is really interesting because oftentimes when you hear people talk about their history classes, they'll say, okay, well, I learned this in my high school history class. I learned similar kind of repetitive things, but then when I got to college, that's when I was able to kind of expand. 
So what we're really doing is introducing those conversations early so that we're able to, again, incorporate and allow students to be able to reflect on that. Adesha, you're also a teacher educator with the Anti-Racist Teaching and Learning Collective, and I listened to one of your talks that you gave, and an example of going deeper is when we think about the Great Migration, also talking to students about redlining. That's not something that I learned in history class. Yeah, and so much of that has to really, um, you know, work in tandem. You know, we have to really, again, keep making sure that we're not only teaching students history, but also helping them. I think it was really awesome what happened in the previous section of talking about how we need to also get them to engage in the world. Um, so how do you make sense of these things? Um, and how do you, again, make sure that that is baked in local history, as well as, um, you know, statewide, national, international context as well. Um, and also understanding that this isn't only supposed to happen necessarily in a U.S. history class. These are similar conversations that should happen in civics classes and um, literature classes, math classes, right? This helping students to, um, again, dive it deeper into this content is really important um, when we're constructing our curriculums. I mentioned this is a mandate from the state. It's an elective course that high schools in Connecticut will have to offer. But given the, the conversation we just had with Dr. Freeman, uh, some of the, the backlash that uh, communities are here having, whether it's in Connecticut or nationwide, when we talk about race and the systems in place in our country, there has been backlash. Are you, any, are you concerned at all about how this will be rolled out uh, in communities? Yes, um, I am. Uh, I am a bit concerned, and I think everyone is of, of kind of making sure um, that you know people are provided with the resources, and that everyone is kind of understanding what we're trying to do in the classroom. It really goes deeper than kind of just addressing race. It's really reimagining the purpose of our classrooms. Um, I think it's really important for all stakeholders to be aware that this is these. This conversation is kind of a little piece in how we're again trying to really again, reimagine education. So much of these initiatives are also aligned with other district initiatives all across the state. Um, social emotional learning, project-based learning, higher order thinking. Um, and keeping in mind, I think it, it is really helpful for people to understand that we're really trying to create a safe space physically, emotionally, and intellectually for students to be able to learn their place in the world. Um, and making sure that we're able to be responsive to their reflections. Um, and so I, I, I am concerned, but I am very hopeful um, at the fact that there are a lot of people who are coming in with good intentions and really willing to listen and learn and be a part of the process of, again, reconstructing our idea of the classroom for students to really make sure that their voices are heard. Um, I think another thing that's really important for people to understand is that a lot of these initiatives are student-led. Um, the African-American mandate was really the work of local students, um, different student coalitions, really coming to the legislative body and saying, this is what we want our classrooms to look like. And so this is also um, very student-led in that way. I'm glad you brought that up, that it was student-led. Uh, you're sitting next to one of your students, Shaquilla Campbell, mm -hmm. who's taking this course. Uh, Shaquilla, can you talk, um, respond to what uh, your teacher shared in terms of, of feeling like this is a, a class that you're safe to have these conversations? Definitely. I feel like, I feel like the class like creates an environment where these, um, these conversations are allowed to fester. I feel like sometimes in like other classrooms, people are wary of 
um, stepping on toes or making people feel uncomfortable or just they're just trying their best not to make people uncomfortable. But this is a class I feel like to get uncomfortable. Like I feel like you have to be able to create that safe space so you can have the uncomfortable conversations because they need to be had. So I just feel like it creates that kind of like community, I feel like, for lack of a better word, to just say what it is that, um, just say what needs to be said regarding race and how it's affecting us directly in society without feeling like we're stepping on toes or feeling like we can't say what we want to say. Uh, it's really good to hear you say that, Shaquilla. Uh, Desha, I wanted to go back to you. You're an African-American historian, and we know it's been a challenging time for educators this last year and a half. And now, again, uh, politics has uh, impacted and and changed the kind of conversations uh, that people feel like they should be having, right? And can you talk more about the semantic trap that educators are stuck in? Because there's this, you know, accusation that critical race theory is being taught in schools, but that's, that's not right. And so can you talk more about the, the place that educators have in all of this? Yeah, I think this conversation really speaks to kind of a broader issue of really how the historical record and, and how historians view and understand history and um, the themes surrounding history and how that kind of can be, how that contradicts oftentimes with public understanding of history. Um, you know, we always say that history is something that is really owned by all of us, but none of us at all. Um, and so I think the, I think that's the reason why work such as the African-American Latin, Latinx course, but also other initiatives um, are so important because it's really helping us to kind of like see history as um, not so much mythic, but again, real um, and impactful and something that you see on a daily basis. And, um, you know, being able to talk about the different approaches um, to how historians go to kind of seek to understand the past um, is really the conversation that's being had here. You know, I think, it has been kind of drilled down that critical race theory is an approach. It's an approach for grad students to be able to understand historical context and, and different um, statistics and, and, and things such as that. But in no way is it just, is it a, a moment that we're kind of discussing? And so again, it's I think it's all about kind of bringing these two opposing sides together and really, again, thinking about how are we going to see history and how is history going to be um, talked about in our society? Um, I think it's really the conversation that's being had and a really important one. Um, the fact that people do say that they don't necessarily understand history until they get to college is a little bit of a problem, right? And so much of that is because, you know, to kind of quote Pablo Freire, most of our curricular resources in high school up to this point has really been banking method, kind of like different dates and very kind of seeing history through a very factual, rigid lens. Um, and then when you get to college, all of a sudden that expands and you see it have a little bit more flexibility and see a little bit more fluidity. Introducing that to younger ages is, is really important, such as, again, looking at um, kind of going back um, to what Mr. Freeman said, talking about that slavery project. How do we understand his slavery through local histories? Those are things that historians do all the time, but students should also be able to engage in that work. That's Daisha Brabham, a social studies teacher at Windsor High School who's been teaching the African-American Latino Studies course this year uh, in fall of 2022. It'll, that elective will be a mandate uh, in all high schools. Daisha, thank you for your time today.
Thank you. Also with us was Shaquilla Campbell, a senior at Windsor High. Shaquilla, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, local educators say they do not teach critical race theory in schools. We're going to talk more about why this debate persists. That's coming up. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Saren Stewart, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs, Director of Global Education at UConn's NEAG School of Education. Saren, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking about how critical race theory has been misapplied. We've been hearing from educators themselves about what they are teaching in their classrooms. Can I get your take on this misunderstanding? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've really enjoyed listening to everyone thus far. And I think that the misunderstanding is really a smokescreen for what is really happening or not happening, right? And then the blame game becomes on CRT. And it becomes this buzzword, which very few actually understand unless you focus on what exactly critical race theory is versus what it is not. So CRT is not being taught in public K through 12 schools. It is very much being taught in most universities or some universities and colleges around the US. Uh, we've been getting uh, some comments from our uh, listeners. Bilal says, I don't understand why we're positioning an inclusive history curriculum as somehow being CRT. An accurate history lesson is not theory. Your response, Sarah? Absolutely, because critical race theory is a framework. It is used to essentially theorize about the ways in which various larger policies, structures, discourses have promoted and continue to support racial subordination. So when I actually just heard Daisha talk about um, redlining, for example, that's a policy. I and mean, you noted it, Lucy, that you weren't taught it in schools, right? And that was a policy in 20th century United States federal law that legalize racial subordination and where persons, especially Black and African Americans could live versus where they could not. What that has resulted is in a significant wealth gap in 2021. So when we talk about critical race theory, we can teach through a more critical lens to look at how systems continue to be designed and subjugate mostly persons of color. You're an educator of educators. And so can you talk about, uh, while we're um, helping explain what critical race theory is, you know, educators can still be informed by it and study it yeah. so that they can then take these lessons into the classroom and help uh, students learn about the, the, the context of, of where we are today. 
Absolutely, 100%. So the, um, I do educate educators. Um, it so happens that I will have, uh, you know, principal, superintendents, math education teachers, special education teachers in my grad classrooms, in addition to higher education, student affairs professionals, of course. And in teaching them modules or lessons on critical race theory, we focus not just on the framework, but on the self. Because I think Desha alluded to it, there is a lot of great intention out there by educators, but unless you understand how you're showing up in the space with your implicit biasness, you can actually do much more harm than good. So CRT, although it's large framework, essentially breaks down into how you can use critical race pedagogy, critical race methodology, critical race assessments, right? It's actually something I've spoken about in terms of how are we assessing our students and is it through a critical race lens? And when we are better able to teach educators to do this, maybe we will start to see the need of change significantly in the number of students um, succeeding in schools, as well as the number of teachers underrepresented in the state of Connecticut right now. I'm glad you brought that up. That's something I wasn't able to, um, I didn't have time to ask uh, Dr. Paul mm -hmm. Freeman at Guilford, but, you know, that's the school district where uh, they have committed to a teacher residency program uh, to have a teacher of color uh, in that school district. But, you know, that's only one step. How do you retain these teachers to want to work in a place like Guilford? So, you know, I'll just use the numbers just a little bit to, to show how stark in this is, right? And I'm not sure how many of your listeners know this as well. The Connecticut Department of Education reported, I think it was 2019, that there are 90.5% of the teaching population who identify as white. But student enrollment, over 40% of our students are of color. 52% are white. That disproportionate representation of the teaching force is highly problematic. So what do you do is your question, right? Mm -hmm. How do we retain, how do we recruit? So not just retain those, um, those like Daisha doing this critical hard service, right? And labor. But how do we also recruit? I truly believe that you have to have a meeting of of faculty or you know teachers of color to discuss critical issues that are happening within the hiring processes, within the retention processes, within the recruitment and sustainability processes, and then look at incentivizing the way in which these teachers are hired in order for them to remain and be there. Now, do I believe as well that these numbers will shift with the rollout of these mandates? Yes, will it shift? proportionately in a quick number of um, short amount of time? No, that, that probably will not happen unless we take critical action steps to, to really um, actively recruit persons from across, um, across the U.S. within the state, for example, looking at teacher ed preparation programs, who they're admitting, who they're not admitting. But it's one thing for them to have recruitment initiatives when you actually have the persons in place, how do you keep someone as talented as Daisha teaching, right? Um, that cannot be easy because when you're one of few in an environment or one of the only in your department, it is very difficult for, for you to feel that you have the necessary network 
to thrive and prosper in an environment that's not that's not inclusive. So right now we have a highly segregated teaching population. That's the reality. We need to address that. And I know that they have been addressing it. So. Right. Meanwhile, this polarization continues. Uh, you have uh, people running for school board uh, who continue to claim that this is being taught in schools. Uh, <laughs> they want to keep, uh, you know, what they call identity politics out of the classroom. Yeah. How do you feel about that as a longtime educator? You know, I'll be honest with you, um, Lucy, that I think that is just a great tactic when it comes to marketing strategies. So let's applaud and name that for what that is. That is an absolute branding political strategy, right? You do not actually deal with facts. You deal with false claims and those false claims get more airtime. And as a result, those are the persons that hit at those trigger words to get elected, for example. Um, the issue is when you actually realize what the facts are, it's too late. So when it comes to identity politics, I think Paul really said it very well earlier in the segment that if we don't teach students who they are, how to be seen, if we don't teach educators how children and students need to be seen, the trauma that our students and our children have been experiencing since the since schooling, basically, will continue to happen. And when they get to me, essentially, um, in college level, we have to do a lot of the unlearning and of miseducation that they have received and recognize, for example, I've had students in my doctoral course that have come to me and ha have 16 years of education underneath their belt and never been asked about who they are in the classroom. Who are they? And how their implicit bias shows up when they teach students that do not represent, that do not look like them and are black and brown, for example. So I think we've been doing a lot more harm than good in our public schools um, under the facade of identity politics. And I think that the steps that are being put in place is an attempt to correct some of this, but there's so much to be done. And CRT, sure, blame it as much as you want, but the facts still remain that it's not being taught. Now, if you ask me if it should, that's a whole different question. Yeah. Well, we hope we've uh, been able to elevate uh, this conversation uh, to listeners who may be in Guilford or may not be in Guilford and to understand uh, what educators are grappling with every day. Dr. Saren Stewart, thank you for your time today, Associate Professor at UConn's NIAG School of Education. We thank you for your time. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Later this week, we dive into the Stanford mayoral race. We hope you join us.